2019, the elders have decided that on this fifth Sunday of the month, we are going to have the whole service focused around the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to be talking today about Jesus and the very last thing he did in his life. And as I was just kind of, I guess, thinking about in my head whether I, whether I knew what the last thing Jesus did was, I was thinking about the last words he said, the last actions he did, and I would have guessed that the last thing Jesus did was to say, it is finished, which would be a very fitting last thing for Jesus to do. But actually we find in John 19, he does one thing after saying it is finished. In John 19, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're talking this morning about the idea that he gave up his spirit, and what does that mean? Because uh, I thought at first maybe this is just you know, the Jewish way of saying he died, but three, in fact, maybe four, but at least three of the Gospels, we've read just John here, but in, in Luke 23, verse 46, it says, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In fact, three different words uh, used here for uh, commit, yielded, and here, uh, gave up. All different ways of saying Jesus released his spirit at the end of his life. He gave up his spirit. And I want to talk about why that is significant. Why the gospel writers felt it important to tell us that Jesus gave up his spirit. And we're going to talk about two reasons why that is significant for us as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper and consider Jesus' death and its significance to us. So the first of them comes from John chapter 19. It is that Jesus gave himself up. So in the verse we just read, John 19, 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Like I said, I don't think this is just simply the Jewish way of saying he died. I think there is significance to it. And in John, I believe the significance is that Jesus was in control, even to the last moment. So this word, uh, that he gave up his spirit, it's a versatile Greek word. It can be translated in a lot of different ways. In fact, I think in terms of clarity... Gave up the spirit is, a, is the, the best way, probably, to translate it here. But there's a, a, a theme that John is establishing in the last few chapters of his book that uh, is rather subtle, and it has to do with the use of this word. So I want us to go back to John chapter 18, and I want to say I think a better way for us to translate this in terms of figuring out this strand is to say that Jesus handed uh, handed up his spirit. Uh, so, Jesus handed up his spirit. He gave it up. He handed it over. That's what I was looking for. Handed over his spirit. In John chapter 18, uh, in verses 1 through 5, we'll read uh, the same word twice, actually. John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron. Let me stop there. These words, Jesus has just 
in verses 13 through 16, been with his apostles. They partook of the Last Supper. He gave them an extended discourse. And then chapter 17, Jesus prays for the whole chapter. And then in 18, when he'd spoken these words, they went across the brook of Kidron to the garden. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having produced a band of soldiers and some officers uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As I said, this, this word, handed up, is here twice. It's the word that is translated in the ESV, betray. That Judas, who handed him over to the chief priests, he was there. That's in verse 2 and verse 5. Judas, who handed Jesus over to the chief priests. And then later on, in uh, chapter 18, verses 28 through 30, we read, Then they, that is the chief priests, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. This word again, delivered over here, handed over. So first, Judas, who betrayed him, handed Jesus over to the chief priests. Then the chief priests handed him over to Pilate. Later in uh, chapter 19, verse 16, Pilate hands him back over to the chief priests. But in one last defiant act of Jesus' life, Jesus hands over his own spirit. Jesus was in control. Jesus gave himself up. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important? And why do I think that's so significant uh, that John is making this point? Well, in chapter 19, Pilate speaks to him in verse 10. Because Pilate, he thinks he's, con he's in control. Just like the chief priests, they thought they were in control. And they think they're leading Jesus around. They think they have his destiny in their hand. And Pilate tells them, tells Jesus in John 19, verse 10. Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, same word, uh, has the greater sin. Pilate says, look, I'm in control here. Look, I can save you. I can release you. I can crucify you. I'm the one in control here. And Jesus says, it's funny that you think that. But no, I am in control. I, eventually, give up my own spirit. And this is an important theme that John has been making us aware of for a while. In John chapter 10, if you'll turn back a few pages, John chapter 10, John tells his disciples pretty much that same thing. And this is the passage about Jesus being the good shepherd, he's the door, but he's the good shepherd, and in verse 17, we read John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. 
That when Jesus died on the cross, he gave up his spirit. He was not, it was not taken from him. He was not forced to go to the cross. Jesus went there of his own accord. He was in control the entire time. He gave up his spirit so he could take it up again. And why is this important for us? Well, I say it's important in John 10 for the same reason that, say, we have the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. This kind of apocalyptic principle. Something bad is about to happen. Something awful. And you're going to want to know before it happens that it's going to happen. Because the fact that God is telling you, say, you know, in the case of Daniel, that Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come and it's going to be the worst time that's ever existed since, you know, forever. When this happens, you're going to think, man, this is really bad. You're going to think, is, is God really in control? Like, is, is everything okay? Or has the plan gone off the rails? Because God had this plan that we we're going to be this awesome nation. And he was going to deliver us and there was going to be a Messiah and it was going to be amazing. Is, is that still going to happen? And when God shows us, when he reveals to us his truth, we understand, especially when he reveals to us these, these terrible things that are going to happen, we understand that these awful things, Jesus died, that was part of the plan. That wasn't some deviation. That's not some wrinkle. That's not Satan having a victory, although certainly all of the darkest forces thought that. No, Jesus gave up his life on purpose. That was the plan. He was in control the entire time. And so, as we ask, why is this important for us? It helps us as we reflect on the fact that Jesus willingly gave up his life. One, to know, as we've just been talking, that God is in control. That nothing that anyone in this world can do can stop God. In fact, all of these people are actively opposed to God in this. But even the things that they are doing, the things that they are um, trying to attack God, he's using that for his glory. God can take anything and make it a part of his plan because God is that powerful. And so we get to see the power of God, get to see the wisdom of God, but we also get to see the love of God. That God would have a plan. That he loves us this much that from the dawn of time, God's plan was to give his only son on purpose so that we could have forgiveness of sins. It shows us love. It shows us God's power, his control. It's incredibly encouraging. And that leads me then to the second thing that we understand from the fact that God, that Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, and this comes from the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We read, we'll start in verse 44. I have Luke chapter 23. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, when Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. He said, cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. This is a powerful statement. One rooted in what we just talked about, the control that God has in, in all circumstances. But here we see Jesus entrusted his spirit to God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And this statement looks backward and also looks forward. Because it looks backward because this is a quotation from Psalm 31, which we'll look at in a moment. But it also looks forward because Peter and uh, Luke in the book of Acts are going to make reference to this as a pattern by which we should also follow God. That just as Jesus entrusted his spirit to God, so also should we. So let's look back where this comes from in Psalm 31. And uh, Psalm 31 and what we're looking for is in verse 5, Psalm 31, 5. But we're actually going to read a little bit more of this psalm. So that way you get a flavor of the psalm. Because uh, I think Jesus intends for us to understand the context of, of what he's quoting. So Psalm 31, we'll read, we'll read verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 17. So Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. We'll stop there. So Psalm 31, it's like a lot of psalms that we've read. Psalms of deliverance. Psalms of crying out to God in times of peril and saying, God, I am in a bad place. I mean, I am weary. I am my enemies, they're all around me. I'm getting you know, stabbed from every direction. This is not, not a good time for me. But in the midst of this intense peril, I look to you. Verse 1, we see, I take refuge in you. Verse 2, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save. Verse 3, you are a rock and my fortress. Verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. Verse 15, my times are in your hand. And of course, verse 5. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. That no matter what is going on, we understand that God can take care of us. We have songs that we sing like this. It is well with my soul. Whether you know, it's a river or whether it's a stream. No matter what's going on, I know that if I entrust my soul to God, he's going to take care of me. That all of my enemies, they may be you know, trying to assail me from every direction. But if I trust in God, he 
will rescue me. He is a refuge that I can trust. And so this is the psalm Jesus chooses to quote in Luke chapter 23. And so we might ask ourselves why. And at first, uh, something of it makes sense because Jesus is, of course, in a terrible situation. He is being persecuted in the most intense sense because he's died. But in other ways, it doesn't make sense. I mean, these are odd last words. Because this is a psalm that says, no matter what happens, God, I know you're going to rescue me. And then he dies. You may think, okay, those are strange last words. Last words of, of resistance. And yet, as we understand, Jesus rose from the dead. And last words is kind of a funny phrase to use for someone who was dead and then was not dead. See... Jesus, just in the same way that the psalmist viewed the trials. He says, you know, enemies can come against me. I, I, I could be wasting away, but God, I know whatever they throw at me, I know you can keep me safe. You can take me out of it. And we look at death, we look at death as an end. We look at death as the thing that no one comes back from. But Jesus didn't view it that way. Jesus viewed death in the same way that the psalmist viewed the, random, the various trials that he endured. That whatever happens, God's going to bring me back. In the same way, Jesus, as he was dying, said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And then he died. And then he didn't. He rose from the grave because he entrusted his soul to God. And God was able to deliver him out of death. And this sort of strength, this sort of uh, intensity in the face of death, in the face of any sort of persecution, is what we see continued as we look and say Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, this is of course the story of Stephen. Stephen is being stoned, and at the end of the story of, of Stephen, as he's preaching to these Jews, trying to say, hey, you missed Jesus, you, and, and you were hard-hearted, but it's not surprising because they were hard-hearted at Moses, and Jesus is a prophet after Moses, so you should just listen, open up your ears, hear him. But no, they hardened their hearts. And in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. He cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We see Stephen die in a very similar way to Jesus. Stephen died because the people he was trying to tell the truth to, the people he was trying to show the way of life, didn't want to hear him anymore. And they decided to kill him. Stephen, whose last words were, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, or I guess, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And do not hold this sin against them. Because he understood, one, what Jesus understood, which was that God could be trusted. And that even at the face of death, we can entrust our souls to God and he will take care of us. He can deliver us from anything. But also, that God 
judges righteously. That God is in control. And that Stephen went to the grave because he was trying to tell somebody the truth about God. And Jesus went to the grave because he was trying to save us from our sins. And both of these people died for the cause of Christ. And their hope as they died was that those whom were those who were killing them could be rescued. Those who were killing them could be forgiven. This sort of focus, this sort of strength in the face of peril is the kind of thing that we need to have as well. As Jesus had, as Stephen had, this is what Paul, this is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, and Peter reflects back on the life of Jesus and the way that he lived, especially in the face of, uh, uh, on the cross. We read in verse 18, starting, of 1 Peter 2. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The focus, the connection that we are looking for is in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Or he entrusted himself as was his habit. Just the way that Jesus always entrusted himself. When you know, they tried to stone him, they tried to throw him off a, uh, a cliff, they tried to trick him. Like, they were always trying to hurt Jesus. And yet in every situation, Jesus had the same focus. That whatever happens, God can get me out of this. And on the cross, Jesus continued to have that same focus. Whatever happens, God can get me out of this. God will deliver me. God will be my Savior. And and that allows him then to do what we saw uh, him do when he forgave their sins, what we saw Stephen do. What do we see here? That when he was reviled, he didn't revile. Uh, When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Jesus didn't have to attack anybody. He didn't have to accuse anybody because... He was entrusting his soul to God, God who judges righteously. And Peter calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to do it here and also in 4.19. In 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, there are going to be trials. There are going to be persecutions. They're going to try and attack you because you are doing what is good. You are going to suffer as a Christian. And when that happens, 
Do what Jesus did. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Remember why you are doing what you're doing. Remember the, the, the commitment, the focus that you have as Christians. Keep doing good. Keep entrusting your souls to God just the way that Jesus did. And so we've here seen two significant reasons why the gospel writers felt it important to tell us that Jesus gave up his spirit. First, that he gave himself up. That Jesus was in control the whole time. He gave himself up as part of the plan, as a victory. He gave himself up out of love for us. And we need to remember that. Remember that control, remember that love, remember that power as we reflect on the Lord's Supper. And also that Jesus entrusted his spirit to God, that we're going to suffer as Christians. But when that happens, we got to do what Jesus did. we got to entrust our souls to God. We have to remember that into God's hands, we commit our spirit. No matter what happens, we can trust God. And so uh, we're going to call the men up here now. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, I hope that you can reflect on these ideas that God gave up his spirit for us. Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if I have another slide here. That's fine. So, in Matthew 5, oh, perfect. Uh, and Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, Jesus gives two commands. And if I'm honest, I have a really difficult time practically harmonizing them. And uh, I want to talk for, I don't know, five, ten minutes about how we can go about doing that. But first, I want to tell you a story. So, when I was in high school, my friend Ashley and I went to go volunteer at the Creative Discovery Museum, and uh, they put us at this table where we were supposed to help these little kids paint. It was really cool, but the only strange thing was that instead of paintbrushes, they gave us rubber snakes to paint with. And uh, I'm sure that all of you have painted with rubber snakes, but just in case you haven't, I will, I'll just let you know. Uh, it's pretty much impossible to paint anything with a rubber snake. Uh, you can paint like little squiggly lines, but uh, you know I tried to use a tail to like draw a face. It did not work. You, you basically, you can't draw anything with a rubber snake. And if you if you did, the only legitimate reason that anyone would want to use a rubber snake to paint is if you are like some Leonardo da Vinci and you can paint with like anything. You're like some crazy master of art and you want to show everyone just how crazy of a master of art you are that you can paint anything with rubber snake. So you're probably wondering what 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 does it, what, what is this illustration driving? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, we're given a command. Jesus tells us in verse 16 of Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in Matthew 6, verse 1, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. All right, so we have two commands. One of them is don't practice your righteousness so that other people see it. 
And the other one is, practice your righteousness so that other people see it and glory goes to God. Now, of course, we can understand, and it's not too difficult to, like, academically combine these, that one, the problem is doing good things so that other people see it and you get the glory. And the other one, obviously, the point is that God can get the glory. And on paper, that sounds pretty simple, but I find in practicality, it's extremely difficult for me to do. That uh, I, I try to do the right thing, but too often I make it about myself. Or, uh, you know, I try and set a good example for people so that, you know, they can serve God better. But also, you know, deep down, it's, it's, it's kind of still about me. And so I, I, I was thinking about how is it that we can set a good example for people? How is it that we can shine our lights in the community uh, and be different, be set apart for God without it going to our head? How do we do that practically? And uh, so I, I thought about it. And I was like, man, that would make a really great sermon. And uh, I was like, well, it would make a really good sermon because I, 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 don't, I don't really know. And I started to think about it, and I was like, well, there's a, there's a Bible character I know, besides Jesus, of course, who did a really, really good job of this. And I thought, well, maybe if I look at his life, I could figure it out. And so I was thinking about Paul. Uh, Paul, a chosen instrument of God. Paul, who was given so much authority, so much power. Like God was doing amazing things with Paul. And Paul, you, you can read some of his, his statements, and they're, they're kind of shocking. Like, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Like, that's, that, like, if I stood up here and I was like, Well, if you want to know how to serve God, just look at me and do what I'm doing. Like, that's, 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 pretty, that's a pretty big claim. Uh, and Paul does this a few times in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, for example. He's talking about uh, the example that he set, and he says, you, you guys are witnesses that we were blameless, we worked so hard with our hands, uh, just, just do what we did. Uh, and he tells Timothy the same thing. Uh, he says, you know, don't let them look down on your youthfulness, but set an example for the believers. You know, make sure that everyone can see that you are growing. And so Paul, Paul is doing this all the time. And yet somehow Paul can do it in a way that I have a hard time doing. Because when I hear Paul say, uh, be imitators of Christ, uh, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Like, that, that rings different. There's a, there's a sincerity to that. Where I, I believe Paul. I believe that Paul intended the glory to go to God. And I started to think, how is it that Paul was capable of this kind of humility? Like, this kind of power, this kind of... Um, stewardship, but absolute humility in the face of all of that. Glory to God. And I think that the answer lies in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible, because I need to hear it over and over and over again. In 1 Timothy 1, we'll read verses 12 through 16. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, the reason that I was chosen, the reason that I was given so much stewardship, the reason that God is doing such amazing things by my hands is because I was the chief of sinners. I was formerly a blasphemer. And God looked at me. God gave me an overwhelming amount of mercy because I'm the chief of sinners. And if God can do it with me, he can do it with anybody. So we pick back up our rubber snake example. Paul viewed himself as a rubber snake. And I think we should too. That God can do amazing things with us. But it's not because, you know, we're the most amazing instrument in the world. It's because God is awesome. God is powerful. God has so much mastery over his craft that he can take people that are just the worst possible options and make amazing things out of them. God has a history of doing this. I mean, you can look at Israel, for example. God says, I'm not picking you because you're the strongest nation or the most holy. I'm picking you because I want to make a point with you. God does amazing things with Babylon. He does amazing things with Paul. And Paul sees himself as this long chain of, as this long chain of stewardships. As God is constantly giving people stewardship. God is constantly doing amazing things with people. It's not because they're amazing. It's because God is amazing. And so as we go out in the world and we try and execute these commands from Matthew chapter 5, that we would let our light shine before others so that they see our good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We need to go out there. We need to be examples. We need to be lights. We need people to look at us and say, that person is different. That person, they've got their life together in a way that, that I don't. They have a, a holiness, a, a righteousness that I envy. That I, I want to be more like them. I want to be more charitable, more loving the way that they are. Like We need to be like that. And yet, it's not about us. It's about God. We are rubber snakes. And if God can do it with us, if God can do it with Paul, he can do it with anybody. If God can do it with us, he can do it with anybody. That we are vessels to glorify God. And so as we go out in the world, we need to be shining God's light. We need to be examples. We need to be different. But we need to make sure that people understand it's not about me. It's about God. I am an instrument, and God is using me. And if he can do this kind of stuff with me, imagine what he can do with you and for you. And so... We're going to say a song here in a moment. It's meant to encourage you. If you have any sin in your life that we'd like for us to pray with you about and talk with you about, we would love to help you. Or if you've never begun your journey with Christ, if you want to see what amazing things God can do through you, we'd love to talk with you, to baptize you. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing.